If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, James, Forgetting Your Own Face. The author of James didn't always believe, neither did we, so we can relate. As we set the stage to explore this ancient text, what can the author's journey tell us about our own struggles with faith? Jesus of Nazareth had siblings, and one of them wrote a letter that we now call James. And the author of the letter we call James was, like Jesus, like the apostles, martyred. The second century theologian Clement of Alexandria wrote that he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and was beaten to death with a club. Hegesippus, a Christian writer of the early church, offered a few more details. The scribes and Pharisees placed James upon the pinnacle of the temple and threw down the just man, and they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. And one of them, who was a fuller, took the club with which he beat out clothes and struck the just man on the head. This sounds incredible to us. Uh, Oh, don't you feel so guilty because you haven't been clubbed for Jesus kind of way. But for the simple truth that our discipleship to Jesus has not required of us such fantastic feats of devotion. And so we detach ourselves from the character that we call James. He takes on, like other first century disciples and martyrs, almost mythological proportions. And when or if we read about people like Paul and Peter and James, we see their world through the lens of our imagination like a period piece, strange and unknowable, and we can't relate. But while it is very true that the world of the first century in Israel is radically different from our own, there are universal core attributes of this thing called Christianity that haven't really changed much at all. Believing still costs, and we're not always so good at it. Belief comes and goes, and sometimes it comes back again. Open your Bibles to the letter we call 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. In a little bit, we'll read from this letter, but really, we are on our way to another letter called James. We call it James because the author tells us his name. It's the first word of the first chapter, the first verse, James, in English, anyway. In Greek, his name is Jacobus, which is the translation of his Hebrew name, Yaakov, which is really the name Jacob. His name is Jacob. So why do we call it James? Well, uh, it's a long story, but kind of the long and short of it is as Latin evolved, Jacobus became Iacomos. Early French adapted the name and truncated it to Jem. And from there, English took it as James, whatever. His name is Jacob. There are several important Jacobs in the New Testament story, but the one who wrote the letter we call James is actually unique. This Jacob was the half-brother of Jesus himself. What was that like? We don't know because frustratingly he doesn't say 
in the letter. It doesn't give us any inside baseball about growing up with Jesus. He's preoccupied with other more important things than gossiping about his brother. But maybe we can stitch together a crude portrait of Jacob, a portrait, albeit blurred and imperfect, but an image of the man, of Jacob. The New Testament names five brothers of Jesus at least. There's Yaakov, Yosef, Yehuda, and Simeon, as well as mentioning unnamed sisters, plural. So Jesus of Nazareth had at least six siblings, likely more, and every single one of them was raised in the poverty and obscurity of a backwoods nowhere town called Nazareth. Their mother, Mary, and their father, Joseph, believed that their brother, Yeshua, was going to become a great king one day because an angel told them so. It's a long story. Whether or not they told Yeshua's brothers and sisters about this, we don't really know. Once this alleged king inspired family-wide panic and outrage when he was a child. See, every year, all the kids, Mary, Joseph, the extended family, they would all make the long journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. Now, when Yeshua was 12, they went the same as every other year, but when the entire caravan was well into the return trip, a full day of traveling with more to go amidst the animals and luggage and the many children and parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, someone finally realized that Yeshua wasn't there. So terrified, his mom and dad, they rush back to Jerusalem as fast as you can anyway, which is an agonizing day of travel backward with dread that becomes two days, that became three days before they finally found their son in the temple amongst teachers and learned men participating in their scholarly discussions. And everyone was oh so amazed by this kid. But his parents were understandably distraught. The whole family had been in an uproar over the missing boy, as one would. If you were Jacob, this was your brother, the future king, or so they said. But you doubted it. And maybe you were jealous or angry or embittered. We don't know. But it didn't seem like his brother, Yeshua, was on track for kingship. In fact, if you were Jacob, your brother just worked with your dad for years, well into and beyond adolescence. But then your dad died, and all you and your siblings had was your mom. And being a poor widow with a half dozen kids in first century Israel was hard. And if you were Jacob, then like your brothers, you grew up steeped in the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures. You knew that God's heart went out to the poor and to the powerless, specifically to the orphans and widows. And you knew that from the stories, from the scriptures. But then you experienced the why behind it all. And apparently, your older brother, the kid in your house, the poor kid, the kid who held everyone up during that trip back from Passover, the kid who worked with your dad every day, apparently he was going to be the one to fix everything somehow. And then he was gone. After your dad died, when Yeshua was grown, after years of stonemasonry, hidden away in Podunk, Nazareth, nowhere Nazareth, your older brother left with a mission, with resolve, something he called the kingdom of God. But if you were Jacob, you doubted it. Then, by the time Yeshua finally made his way back home, you didn't believe at all. 
He went back into the synagogue to teach that boy who was once 12, wowing religious leaders in the temple. And he was still amazing, curious spectators with the way that he talked. And people told stories about him that your brother apparently performed miracles, that he had some kind of power. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Your neighbors and family members wandered to each other. Isn't this Joseph's son? See, ancient Israel had its own educational system, and these people who had spent three decades with your brother, Yeshua, knew well enough that he had not received a higher education. He worked with your dad, Joseph. When the heck did he sneak off to school? We knew exactly what he was doing. He was working with his dad. He was just here. He's not of noble birth, not a real rabbi, not of an advanced education. And if you were Jacob, you, like everyone else back home, were offended by the audacity of your brother, and you refused to believe him. In fact, more than once, you tried to stop him. When his family heard about what Jesus was doing, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. You tried to get him to stop what you thought was a radically, ridiculously mistaken mission. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Why would you? Later, when scholars would write about you, Jacob, your life, one would say this. Jesus seems at first to be special, perhaps even messianic, but people with fathers like carpenters and mothers like Mary and brothers and sisters like the people that they know cannot be messiahs. He is too much like them to be the transcendent one. If you were Jacob, brother of Jesus, you rejected Jesus's claims. Maybe you saw no good reason to believe them. Maybe he was too close. It was too far-fetched. Life had been hard for your family. This was how things were going to get better, your brother. And where did all this kingdom of God mission get him? Executed by the Roman Empire, by the oppressors. Some king he turned out to be. And when your brother died, you weren't there. Later, you'd hear stories about the way that your own mother wept beneath the suspended body of your brother, cracked and bleeding out, and she was crying, the story would go, when your brother asked his friend John to take care of your mother. He didn't ask you or any of your brothers because none of you were there. And maybe you wondered about the last time you were with your brother Jesus, not knowing it'd be the last time you'd ever see him until you saw him again. Years after your brother died, a man named Paul would write a letter to a group of people in a city called Corinth, a city of people who did believe that your brother said things that were true, that he was who he said he was, who did believe in the kingdom of God, something you likely would have never suspected could happen. His own hometown didn't believe. His own family hadn't believed. And somewhere between that story and these new believers in Corinth, something had happened to you, an experience few people could begin to understand. We don't know what it was like, not really. It's only a passing detail in Paul's greater message. But in five simple words, we learn what changed Jacob, the one we call James, forever. Let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of Scripture? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul writes, 
to the church in Corinth. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, also, as to one abnormally born. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, if you were James, Jacob, maybe you'd say that was when you actually believed. Maybe that is when everything changed. And suddenly you were wrapped up in something bigger than your little town and all your sufferings and hardships and any shame or regret you'd felt over your brother's death because now there was the movement. Now there was the way. You were there when everything changed because you remembered years of your life steeped in the Torah, in the Hebrew scriptures. You remembered so many readings week after week in synagogue, like Numbers 11, Moses saying, I wish that all Yahweh's people were prophets and that Yahweh would put his spirit on them. I wish, as in it hasn't happened. You remembered the prophets who looked to the future's horizon and foretold a day on which the Holy Spirit would step out of the background of the story and into the light, the foreground, once and for all. And when that day would finally come, they foresaw an entirely new reality for all of humanity, not just Israel. You remembered Isaiah 44 and Joel 2. But listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what Yahweh says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb and who will help you, Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. A day in the future when God's spirit, like water, would be poured out over a thirsty desert and that desert will be forever changed. And afterward, again, in the future, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. These passages that look forward to a day in the future in which God's spirit would be poured out like water in a desert in want of nourishment. You grew up hearing those stories if you were Jacob, and then you were there when it finally happened. When they'd tell the story years later, they would write this. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. If you were Jacob, you were there when everything changed. And across the unfolding and often difficult years ahead, you, the brother who didn't believe, became a leader of the movement. In fact, you helped lead the first Christian community there ever was, and it was made up of Messianic Jews just like you, Hebrew men and women who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and more than that, he was the Lord. He was God, the creator God incarnate in the flesh. And for 20 years, you led the church in Jerusalem, though the great famine and its ensuing poverty and desperation would threatened to bring it to an end through the great persecution of your fellow Jews, this religious leader's desperate attempt to quench the movement your brother began, you would continue to stay faithful. They called you a pillar of the movement. Thousands of years later, the people studying you would write things like, I'm a Protestant, but if you asked who was the first pope, I would choose James. Because You led the beginnings of what would become the church as it proliferated across the ancient world. If you were Jacob, the one that we call James, you'd say that you never forgot the Torah. You never forgot your widowed mother or the hardship of poverty. And that informed your writing, your leadership. And one day, you'd send a letter to the growing community of Jesus' disciples. Turn in your Bibles to the letter we call James chapter 1. If you were Jacob the one we call James, maybe you'd say that your letter was to be sent out and read amongst Jewish Christians scattered across and outside the land of Israel. But probably, really, you were writing to everyone who follows Jesus. And your letter begins like this. James chapter 1, verse 1. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. After all that, from doubter to disbeliever to leader to pillar of faithfulness and leadership, eventually martyr, you call yourself a servant. The other letter writers, they would call themselves things like Servants and apostles, they'd call themselves slaves of Jesus or prisoners of Christ. Because if you were the guy we now call James, you'd say you were simply a servant. You remembered that among others called servants were people like Moses and David and Amos and Jeremiah and Daniel, a term of both subordination and of honor in the Jewish messianic community. And your letter isn't like the other letters. It's not like Paul's, who you knew. It's not like Peter's, who left you in charge of the church in Jerusalem when he moved on to plant other churches. And all of that, all of that story, your story, is in the letter. Not all of it on the page at face value, but some in-between words embedded in the letter's DNA, in its context, and everything stretching out before and after. 
your years in Nazareth amongst your brothers and sisters, one of them you knew as Yeshua, but would later call the Lord. Your poverty and suffering, the, the death of your father, your mother left a widow, the injustice and evils of Rome, the oppressor, denying Jesus, then meeting him risen from the dead, waiting on God's spirit all your life and then seeing it poured out before your very eyes. If you were James, you'd have written what many believe is the earliest Christian letter. And hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, your audience would continue to find it. All disciples of Jesus everywhere. And they'd reread it again and again. They would study it and they would write, James is a -a one-of-a-kind document. At the literary level, there is no real parallel among ancient letters, essays, and homilies. At the historical level, there's nothing quite like it among the early Christian documents. They'd say, James falls uncomfortable, silent among many who are empowered. But the same voice of James delights the ears and transfigures the hopes of the unempowered. They'd say, if the letter of James were sent to the Christian communities of certain countries that suffer from violence and exploitation, it would be very possible intercepted by government security agencies. The document would be branded as subversive. Your letter would for centuries upon centuries, stir conviction and instigate outrage and uproar. Is there any better indication of its Christianness that it would provoke as effortlessly as it compels? It would invade the comfort and security of privatized Christianity, its wallets and positions of power then and now. In fact, One day, American writer and political activist Upton Sinclair would quote your letter and say that it was written by anarchist Emma Goldman just to antagonize religious leaders so incensed by its sentiment. Because if you were James, you weren't writing to the church in Rome or the church in Corinth or the church in Colossae. You were writing to scattered disciples of Jesus everywhere. And your letter would emerge amidst a cacophony of competing voices, Jewish, Greek, Roman. You rode into a world of paganism and hedonism and sex gods and political idolatry. And thousands of years later, later, your letter would continue to pierce the crowded and contradictory landscape of religious sexuality and nationalism. And little communities on the other side of the world would crowd into buildings on warm summer Sunday evenings to open this ancient thing with all its literary elegance and poignant simplicity. And for just a few weeks across the summer, marvel at the way you draw our attention back to a rich, provocative truth. That you believed Jesus was who he said he was. That everything he said was true, especially the things against which we stop up our ears and try desperately to ignore the things that disrupt our comfort, and yet the things that make us most free. And if you were Jacob for decades of your life, you would live for this truth before eventually you would die for it. And it's incredible. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. We have so much to learn 
from these few short chapters this summer in the book we call James. But as I went back and forth this week for how to best introduce this new letter, this new series, I poured over commentaries and scholars and theories and debates, and I wondered if we might talk about the way that Jacob's letter didn't make it into the biblical canon at all until the fourth century, or the way that figures of the Reformation like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they never warmed up to Jacob, who emphasizes right living over grace, which is inconvenient in the Reformed theological machine. Or maybe we'd go in a different direction. We would trace Jacob through his off-screen cameos in the Gospels and throughout Acts and in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Or maybe we'd talk about the way that James died, that he was martyred, that he was stoned or bludgeoned with a club or one after the other. Or we would do all kinds of work setting up the time and place and context of the letter. But really, as late as last night, this is what occurred to me. That for all the incredible fireworks of Jacob's story and for all the rich, soul-stirring theology in the chapters ahead, what stood out to me was this. The guy that we call James, Jacob, the brother of Jesus, before he was the first pope, before he wrote the first Christian letter, before he led the first community of Jesus followers for decades, before he was martyred, he didn't believe in Jesus at all. And not in that, oh, he just hadn't heard the gospel kind of way. He grew up with Jesus. And long after Jesus was just his older brother, the guy who worked with his dad building things out of rocks, when Jesus had left home and began his mission, when he was healing the sick and casting out demons and resuscitating dead people and confronting hypocrisy and preaching the kingdom of God, Jacob didn't believe it. And when Jesus, his brother, was arrested and executed, Jacob wasn't even there. His mom was there without Jacob or any of his brothers or sisters. Jesus had to entrust his widowed mother to a friend. If you were Jacob, then there was a point in your life when you were a dedicated unbeliever in the Jesus story, even after the gospel, even after miracles. But things change. Over the next handful of weeks, you'll see that arguably one of the core concepts in this letter that we call James is the author's emphasis on integrity. He goes on and on about the way that authentic devotion to the way of Jesus is evidenced by lifestyle, by what we say and do and think, the way that we live. And many of us, we didn't believe in Jesus, then we did and then we didn't again. And maybe not with some big dramatic I'm out deconversion moment, but you lived the life of belief. And then not so much. Who knows why? You got tired. Life got hard. You got distracted. There were other things pulling at your heart. A career, a relationship, a trial, screens, habits, the unstoppable crawl of time. And this is your life. It's ending one moment at a time. You wake up an adult. You wake up a mom or a dad. You wake up a career woman. You wake up someone else. And you realize things have drifted. That Jesus has become like the exercise bike, once so instrumental in the rhythm of your world, only to become an expensive paperweight, vaguely present, though mostly overlooked. Jesus has become a show you used to watch. You still like it just, you know, sort of forgot about it. 
What happened in that show anyway? You didn't believe, and then you did, and then you didn't again. Not really. And my big inspirational conclusion, believe it or not, isn't, well, hey, Jacob didn't believe, but then he did, and he led this incredible life for the kingdom of God. My big inspirational conclusion is that he didn't believe, and then he did. And he was faithful, even unto death. He'd heard the truth, seen the truth, and he didn't care. But then he saw Jesus again in a new way. Things change. For the better, they change. I can't engineer a miraculous Christ encounter for the sake of a sermon about a dude who died a couple thousand years ago, but I can remind us, all of us, the strange and beautiful backdrop of the letter we call James. People don't believe, and then they do. And sometimes they don't believe again. In fact, later the author himself will say this, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. All of us wonder, but we can come back to the truth. And our stories are going somewhere. We're not always sure where, and it's going places that we can't control, but what we believe and how we live is up to us. Over the next few weeks, like many church summers, when things tend to slow down and when a lot of people don't show up, my simple invitation is that we, together, as men and women and families of faith, reconsider faithfulness and integrity, to reevaluate the ways in which we have ceased to believe, and to remember that things change, that just as one wanders from the truth, they can come back. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to prepare us to learn and grow as a family, as a community. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.